Um, I want to begin my message this morning uh, in a way that is a little bit different. Uh, I'm just going to kind of be vulnerable with you and open up and share something about my life and my past that um, hardly anybody knows. I used to be in a gang. Why are you laughing about that? I got the shaved head. I got the tough guy look. You got, you're not intimidated? I'm telling you, I was in a gang. It was kindergarten, admittedly. But we had a gang. Our gang didn't have like a name or anything like that. But we knew who we were and we had passwords and we had a secret handshake and we even made up a homemade language so that we could talk in code around people who were on the outside and they would not know. But here's something you should know. If you're in kindergarten, you're struggling with English. Second language is not so helpful, right? But um, it was important to us in kindergarten. When I got to kindergarten, it was important to me to know who was us and who was them, right? And that happens all through your school experience. If you've been to school, you know what that's like. It made me think of uh, the book Tom Sawyer where Huck is trying to join Tom's gang and Tom has to kind of set him down and explain to him, Huck, listen, it's not that I don't like you. It's not that you wouldn't be welcome. It's just that, you know, if you were in our gang, what would people think of us? And, and that's kind of the attitude that we start having as kids. We want to know who it is that's one of us and who it is that's one of them. And as we get older, it does not change. I don't know what it was like where you went to high school, but where I went to high school, it was very, very clear who fit in which group and who was not in that group. My group was the jocks, and we sat in the middle of the quad at lunchtime, and there was our place. And if you were some kind of nerd science kid or something, and you wandered into our place, we made sure you were aware you do not belong with us, right? Now, I don't know, some of you were the nerd science kids. I don't know where you were at lunchtime. Maybe you were in the lab or something. I don't know where you guys were, but... It was very clear, you dress a certain way, you talk a certain way, you hang out with certain people. There are some people who are your people and there are some people who are not your people. So I was doing it in kindergarten, I was doing it in high school, and as you become adults, you still do it, don't you? We just learn to be more subtle about it. We, we have, as we've been talking about, our, our political groupings. We have our sort of religious groupings. We have uh, groupings in terms of socioeconomic status. We have groupings in terms of age groups that we're willing to hang out with and be a part of. We wear certain clothes. If you have a certain house, live in a certain neighborhood, drive a certain kind of car, it all says something about you. And we all know that it says something about us. And we sort of get these definitions of each other based on that sort of stuff. And so we're spending some time this summer in the book of Acts. And as we think about what it means to be the body of Christ, we run the risk of looking at what the scripture says about the church in Acts and all of the wonderful things about what it was to be a part of that body and all the wonderful things that it is to be a part of the body of Christ today and we run the risk of becoming inward focused. 
And so just in the, in the interest of balance, I want us to get a fuller picture of what the church is all about because, you know, Christianity is a subculture unto itself in this country, isn't it? I hope you know what I'm talking about. Um, we have our own symbols. What are Christian symbols? What? Yeah, we have a cross, we have a fish. What else do we have? We have what? The tomb, the, tomb, the empty tomb, yeah. We got, yeah, not of this world stickers on our vehicles. Uh, we have certain t-shirts that we wear. We have certain hats that we wear. We have certain um, lingo that we use, do we not? They call it Christianese, and if you're outside the group, you don't really know what it means. Like, for instance, if I say something like, if it be God's will, what that really translates as is, I really don't think it's going to happen, but if it doesn't happen, don't blame me. <laughs> if I say to you, that's not really my spiritual gift, what that means is find somebody else to do it. <laughs> if I say, you know, I have a check in my spirit about that guy, that means I think that guy's a total jerk. <laughs> but you can't say that because we're Christians. If you say, I'll be praying for you, what that means is there's almost no chance I'll think about you again at all this week, but if I do, who knows, I might say something to God. If you say I have some prayer concerns I need to share, what that means is listen up, there's juicy gossip coming. So just in case you're like new around here and you don't understand what people are saying now, you have a better idea. And if a preacher says, in conclusion, that means get comfortable. <laughs> You're going to be here a while. So in some ways, Christianity has its own subculture, and that's not entirely bad. It's not necessarily bad at all. There's a lot of great things about the subculture of the Christian church, but it can easily become a problem. Um, and so I just want us to get our, our uh, moorings here, and I keep doing this to you, but I want you to open to the book of Acts, and I want to lay foundation again for where we're going in Acts. In chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, there's this section that is so profound in, in sort of summarizing what it means to be the church that I want us to keep visiting and visiting and visiting this passage until it's drilled into your heart. It's in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, and let me read it to you yet again. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing, with, uh, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love that picture. 
I love that description of the body of Christ, what it is to be the church. It's a profound, incredible blessing that I often take for granted because I'm so used to being a part of the family of God. And it is so easy to take for granted the fact that God has blessed us with the Holy Spirit. God has blessed us with fellowship with one another, that our lives can be woven together, that we have a support system, that there are people who will pray for us, there are people who will share with us, there are ways for us to exercise our gifts and ways for us to bless people. All of this is really, really, really good stuff. And and when you read that section, you go, wow, it's all about what they all had in common. It was great to belong to the church. As they say, membership has its privileges, right? Um, There's an attitude of inclusion described here. That if you're one of us, I got your back, that we're gonna link arms, we're gonna be in this together. There's an attitude of devotion to God and to one another, but it's really easy for that attitude of inclusion to cross the line and very quickly not just be about who we're including but who we're excluding, right? That happens very easily if we're not careful. The people of God have been struggling to get this right since there was a people of God. You could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram and he says, hey, I'm gonna make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you and out of you is going to come many nations and you will be a blessing to all of those nations. And you see all throughout the Old Testament where God says to Israel, I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to be a blessing to those who are not among you. I want you to have an attitude of outreach to people who have not been already blessed in this inner circle, so to speak. You're blessed to be a blessing. That's been true of the people of God since there was a people of God, and yet we still struggle to get it right. Think about Jonah's story. We won't look it up, but you probably heard the story, right? God comes to Jonah, the prophet. This is a Jewish prophet. This is a man of God. God comes to him and says, hey, there's this Gentile nation over here. Go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to share with them about me. And Jonah says, absolutely not. Have you seen those people? Do you know what those people are like? You know, those are the other guys. I'm not going there. And he goes to great lengths to avoid going where God wants him to go. And in case you didn't pick up on this, let me just give you a little piece of advice from the book of Jonah. It's better to listen to God the first time, amen? (laughs) Otherwise, it stinks inside a fish. But that was Jonah's story, and it's symbolic of the way we are all tempted to be who call ourselves the people of God. But let's not forget what Jesus said to his disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's really the same exact calling as the calling he put on Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. It's the same calling he's been reminding the Jews of all of this time. It's the same calling that went on Jonah and it's the same calling that the people of God have a tendency to resist because we love the us part. 
And because we love the us part, we have to define the them part. And we have this, this need in our hearts to be able to define who is us and who is them. It was true for me in kindergarten. It was true for me in high school. It's true for me now that I'm 30-something. <laughs> but it's pretty clear that by the first century, God's people were no better about erasing that us and them line than they were in the Old Testament. They just wanted to stay in their comfort zones. They just wanted to be with their people. They just wanted to be able to do their Christian thing. And so the persecution came to Jerusalem. And because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, Christians were chased out. And where were they chased to? Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. God has a way of getting us where we need to go. If you don't believe that, just ask Jonah who got spit onto the shore in what city? Nineveh. God has a way of getting us to the places that he wants us to be. And those places are rarely in our comfort zones. And, and so by now, the church, the, the young church is spread out and they find themselves on the them side of the us and them line. Now they're not like the people that are around them. Now they're not being supported by the people that are around them. And at least, you know, uh, they go to Samaria, right? Remember, Philip went to Samaria. They shared with the Samaritans. There was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. There was a revival in Samaria. Samaritans were coming to Christ in huge numbers. Um, and, and, but, you know, if you're a Jewish believer in the first century, it's one thing to share with the Samaritans, I mean, at least they kind of worship the same God that you worship, but it's an entirely different thing to share with the Roman Gentiles and, and to have something in common. There's no way in your mind that God could want his people to mix with the likes of those Gentiles, especially Roman Gentiles, and certainly not Roman soldiers who had been guilty of oppressing these people for decades. And so obviously that can't be God's will, right? Or so they thought. And then comes Acts chapter 10. All right, open your Bibles. Acts chapter 10, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. And we're gonna begin looking at this story in Acts chapter 10. Now already the Samaritans have been um, reached with the gospel. Already the Ethiopian eunuch has heard about the gospel and taken it back down to Africa. But still the church is defined in their minds as a, as a new iteration of Judaism. Now, verse one, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Let's stop there. That means this guy was an officer in the Roman army. It means that he was a commander of soldiers. It means that he was one of the guys who made the decisions that made life for these new believers very, very difficult. Verse two, but he was a devout man 
and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, Cornelius. He is a Roman centurion, but he knows about the God of the Jews, and he is what is referred to as a God-fearing Gentile. That is to say that he prays to the one true God. It is to say that he supports the Jewish people. Imagine what a strange thing that must have been for a Roman officer to do that at that time in that place. And, but he has not yet become a Jew. He's not yet um, been a, become what is called a proselyte. That would involve uh, a massive, massive process which would include circumcision. And he hadn't done that yet. And so he's just somebody who's kind of interested in the God of the Jews and he is even giving financially to help support them. Look at verse nine. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. I don't know what it is with Peter and the need for things to be repeated three times. But this happens again and again in his life. And the other thing you notice that you'll recognize in Peter's life from the Gospels is he says, no, Lord. Now just think about that for a second. He does it multiple times in the Gospel. Jesus says something and he says, no, Lord. And here he says, by no means, Lord. So as I've said before, this isn't a phrase that should never be uttered. If he's Lord, it's not no, and if, he's, if it's no, he's not Lord. But you don't get to say to the God of the universe, no, Lord. But Peter does it again and again, and hence the three times repeating, because when your head is that thick, you have to be knocked in the head numerous times. Trust me, I know. So, in uh, beginning in verse 17, we basically have 
the Holy Spirit telling Peter, listen, um, there's gonna be some guys that are coming to this house and when they get here, I want you to go with them. I know it's gonna be weird. I know it's gonna seem strange and I know you're gonna think you shouldn't do this, but I'm telling you, anything that I have called clean, you better stop calling unclean. Go with these men, even though they're Gentiles. Go with these men, even though they're Romans. Go with these men, even though they're going to take you into the home of a Roman centurion who is a Gentile. This is absolutely outside of the Jewish practice to do. But I'm telling you, go with them. And so he agrees to go, but he's confused because this doesn't fit his mental model of how this goes. Something about this seems wrong. I want you to go and hang out with these Roman soldiers. That is a crazy notion to somebody like Peter. For, for Peter to go and hang out in the home of Roman soldiers would be like Ben Shapiro speaking at the Democratic National Convention. This is an out-of-bounds kind of thing. For Peter to be among those uh, Roman soldiers, that would be like if you're watching a USC football game and there in the middle of the student section with pom-poms, you see me. That's not gonna happen. It's something about that you go, hey, there's something wrong with this picture. Something is not right here. But when the Holy Spirit speaks... You shrug your shoulders and you do what he tells you to do. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> we have one godly person in the church. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit speaks, even if you don't understand, you shrug your shoulders and you do what he says to do. Amen. Thank you. I'm glad you guys woke up for this. Listen, look at Acts chapter 10, verse 24. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am just a man. And he talked with him. He entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. What a polite way to start a relationship. <laughs> Listen, you understand you're not in my class, right? I, I probably shouldn't even be hanging out with folks like you. But God has sent me here Verse 29, that's why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? I'm here because God told me to be here. I'm not here because I like you. I'm not here because I have anything um, that I want from you. I'm not here because I want to have friendship with you. I'm not here to have fellowship with you. I'm here because God grabbed me by the nape of the neck and dragged me here and said, I have to come and see you. So what is it that you want? That's the spirit of what he's saying. And then in verses 30 through 33, you have Cornelius explaining to him, look, I was praying and an angel came and said I should send for you and that you would have a message for us. Pick it up in verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, 
I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's worth underlining. God does not show partiality. Now, let's make sure we're not misunderstanding. Does that mean that God has no standards? No. Does that mean that, that um, God doesn't reserve the right to say what is right and what is wrong and to hold us accountable to that? No. Does it mean that all ideas and all cultural practices have equal merit in God's eyes? No. It simply means that people are people. We have that in common, every one of us, made in the image of God. Every one of us, endowed by our creator with unbelievable value, simply because we are people. Simply because we've been made in the image of God. When it comes to people, we are all in the us circle. There is no them. And then as you keep going in verse 36, um, Peter stands up and says, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. As Peter has been doing all throughout the book of Acts, when he gets an opportunity, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. And he preaches about Jesus. And then skip down to verse 43. This is how he ends his story. Of him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What a shocking message. Now listen, I know you've heard that message before. I know that as a culture and as a society, many of us accept that as a normal and reasonable message. But you guys, to the Jews, the Gentiles have always been in the them category. The Gentiles have always been the ones that God doesn't like. We are God's people, they are not God's people. And so while we enjoy this amazing, wonderful camaraderie, while we enjoy this incredible fellowship, while we enjoy all all of the things that we have in common, we open the blinds and we peek out and we see them out there and we go, ooh, lock the doors. Let's make sure we keep them out there so that we can be in here untouched and unbothered by them. That's the message that the Jews had always believed and that is the message the Gentiles had always gotten from them. And now Peter comes along and he says, everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It's a shocking message. And it's amazing what happens when you drop your preconceived ideas about them, whoever them is. And you drop those preconceived conceptions and ideas, and we start to meet people where they're at. And we start to remember that what we have in common is so valuable and so significant and that we start to remember that whoever them is, he or she is made in the image of God. He or she has intrinsic value. And we start to meet people where they're at and we start to share the love of Jesus with them. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. 
all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. All of a sudden, it wasn't just us and them, but there's a bridge between us and them, and it's God. The Holy Spirit becomes the thing that we have in common, and suddenly they realize that God has a love for all people, so much so that John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a shocking message. It's a shocking development. Oh, friends, let's never forget about God's heart for those who are not yet his followers. I want you to just flip back to chapter two of Acts again. And and let's look again in verse 37. Acts chapter two, verse 37 Now when they heard this, that is the preaching of Peter. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. Who do you know who fits in the category of all who are far off in their relationship to God, far from God, far from the the norms of good, upstanding religious folks, people who who have accepted the lies of this world, people who have been deceived, people who have been confused, and people whose lives are being poisoned by the fact that they're not walking with God. Who do you know? And if your answer is nobody, go meet somebody. Because you guys, ah, sorry, I don't want to get rude here, but as Christians, some of us who really love God are so afraid of those who don't know him that we don't build relationships with them. And if, you, if you're living in such a Christian bubble that all of your relationships are with people who are praying for you and supporting you and encouraging your walk with God, I'm telling you, those relationships are wonderful. Don't leave them. Just don't always stay there. There are people who desperately need to know Jesus and you know what? We can sit here and judge someone's behavior and we can judge someone's lifestyle and we can judge someone's social media posts and we can judge someone's attitude and the way they dress and the music they listen to and the things they do and the places they go. We can sit back and judge everybody or we can follow the Lord, be the light of the world and touch lives for Jesus. That's what he's called us to. God's word says that we're all in the same boat, every one of us sinners in need of a savior. All of the other ways that we might use to describe ourselves or others pale in comparison and are meaningless compared to that. And once we know the savior, he makes us all one. 
Let me read to you from the book of Galatians. You don't have to turn there. I just want to close with this. Oh, there it is. I just want to close. Get, get comfortable. I just want to close with this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to those who have said yes to Jesus, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Samaritan, whether they're Gentile, whether they're slaves, whether they're free, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're men, whether they're women. Say, oh, Pastor Doug, aren't you reading into this? No, let me keep reading. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to his promise. Now guys, it doesn't mean that there's literally no difference between Jews and Greeks. There's literally no difference between males and females. Obviously, we know that there are things that describe people that are different. That's not his point. His point is that being in Christ trumps all that. He makes us one. It's an incredible privilege to be one. But when we begin to think that being us means excluding them, we have missed the point for which Jesus Christ came. He said, I'm the light of the world. And then he said to his followers, now you be the light of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to say thank you Thank you for shining the light in the darkness. Thank you that every one of us was once blind, but because of your grace, we're able to see. Thank you, God, that it wasn't about our qualifications that you received us into the family of God. Thank you that it wasn't because somehow we kept enough rules or we did enough good things or we were just nice enough or kind enough or pretty enough or rich enough or whatever enough. It's because, Jesus, you alone are enough. And so we thank you, God, for your grace. And we pray that somehow you would make us not buckets filled with grace, but pitchers who are pouring out your grace to others. Thank you, God, for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.